Welcome to the Eureka Nerd Podcast. I'm Will, charismatic megafauna. And I'm Leah, sour marshmallow. And you join us this week with a celebration of all things great and beautiful in research that is the Ig Nobel Prize. This being the alternative to the Nobel Prizes and frankly people from whom we're very much following on in our coverage of weird science. Yes, the people at Improbable Research who do all kinds of work in covering the uncoverable science or just bringing light to where it really shouldn't be shone have been celebrating the 26th annual Ig Nobel Prize and we're going to go through some of their winners from this year's selection starting off with the Ig Nobel Prize in Reproduction. This one has gone to Ahmed Shafiq who is unfortunately no longer with us but what he studied was the effects of wearing polyester, cotton, or wool trousers on the sex life of rats and conducted similar tests on human males. If you're thinking of someone who's maybe not their life's work, but the end of their life's work, putting small trousers on rats, then you're right. He's spent literally years putting rats in trousers and then keeping track of how much sex they have while wearing the trousers. And taking that animal model forwards, he puts grown human men into polyester thongs to see, well, to see what happens, frankly. The term used in the abstract is a polyester sling that they've uh, applied to their sample group's testicles. As worn by Sasha Baron Cohen in his Hollywood smash film Borat. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it doesn't look like a mankini, although it's about as unappealing a concept, I think. Just, yeah, no, wrap your balls in a piece of sweaty, staticky fabric. Because the reason for... Looking into this is the way polyester and polycotton blends create static electricity. And Shafiq wanted to investigate whether this might be useful as a contraceptive method, and it turns out it might be. Every two weeks, a physician at the Faculty of Medicine at Cairo University in Egypt examined 14 30- to 47-year-old male volunteers wearing a polyester scrotal sling day and night for 12 months to determine if polyester fabrics can act as a contraceptive in men. They changed the sling only when it became dirty. None of the men dropped out of the study, which is a dedication that I can only admire, and the sling did not cause any complications or reactions. Their partners took an oral contraceptive until three sperm samples proved the men to be azoospermic. The men then became azoospermic for 120 to 160 days after the first putting on the sling, and that's that's quite something, four to five months. It's quite fast, and while it is only looking at uh, I think a sample size of 14 men, so it's only a starting point. We can't say, right now, throw away your condoms, throw away your oral contraceptives, just wear polyester underpants forever. It's quite promising. You know, we've been looking for a male contraceptive for a long time. It shouldn't just be a responsibility for the partner who might get pregnant. And 14 people, when you're starting out with a first-in-human trial, isn't really that far off if you're looking at, say, chemotherapies or radiotherapies. They start with small groups because these are possible treatments that could go very wrong if they wound up not going right. But it did do lots of work with animal models first, the aforementioned rats in tiny trousers. Although I feel that we should note that having worn the polyester sling for some time, all of the couples then did try to conceive... Well, five of them were trying to get pregnant. The others were just sort of carrying on as normal. But those five did conceive. Make success for conceptions one miscarriage, which does therefore imply they were fine with having sex with a man who'd been wearing a polyester sock on their knob. Not knob. Balls. Important distinction. 
Anyway, moving on. Do we have to? We do. Unfortunately, we can't talk about rats in tiny trousers and polyester scrotal slings forever. However, if anyone out there listening to this does want to draw us some fan art... Please don't. (laughs) Moving on. (laughs) We've got the Economics Prize, which was won by... Mark Avis, Sarah Forbes, and Sheila Ferguson for assessing the perceived personalities of rocks from a sales and marketing perspective. It does uh, lend itself to a certain marketing theory that, well, I think really peaked in the 60s and 70s with the idea of people selling pet rocks. Yeah, unfortunately that's not what it's about, even slightly. There's a lot of work done in branding and marketing theory about the personalities that people will perceive from particular logos and particular, say, shapes of packaging. Does this font look friendly to you? Exactly. Essentially, this team were looking at the brand personalities of rocks because they don't have any prior associations with brands. Everything else having been branded already, all that's left unmarketed in the world is rocks basically testing the theories that people have been making money out of for a very long time it's actually putting these to the test to see if you know there's any sort of accuracy in the way that marketers and branding consultants consider these things using pictures of rocks as stimuli this article supplies the principles of acres methodology to examine the brand personality of rocks Rocks are the chosen stimuli, as they don't have any obvious commonalities with any brands or antecedents to brand personality formation. Findings revealed that each rock stimuli has a distinct brand personality, and that the personality is developed from sometimes surprisingly detailed personifications. Unfortunately, the article is currently behind a paywall. We've not been able to get any access to that. Hopefully, we will look forward to a wonderful future in which pet rocks make a return to our shelves, and you can say, oh no, I am much more of a jade kind of person. I mean, we're not we're not talking, uh, you know. I mean, do you prefer like diamonds or sapphires? We're talking more like here is a brown rock I picked up from the path. Here is a grey rock I picked up from the beach. Which is friendlier? It's, it's the grey one because it's going to be rounder if it's a beach stone. Round things are friendly. Moving on from economics and brand personality of rocks, we reach the physics prize. The Physics Prize goes to the international team responsible for discovering why white-haired horses are the most horsefly-proof horses, and for discovering why dragonflies are fatally attracted to black tombstones. This is all to do with how they perceive light, I believe. Although there's a lot more physics in it than I can really wrap my head around. It does all get very physics, very polarisation. So I'll just pull a quote here from the discussion. We propose that the polarotaxis of tabinids, which is to say horseflies, can also play an important role in their host choice. Although differently coloured hosts should be equally appropriate as blood sources for female tabinids, these insects prefer darker hosts against brighter, as shown here. Paler coloured horses reflect light in a way that the flies can't pick up as well. It makes them harder to see, and lots of animals are known to have different sets of colour vision. Dogs and cats and horses, for instance, see different bandwidths of coloured light in different ways. So you can imagine that for insects, aiming for darker horses is going to aim for a warmer place for them to hide, those bodies holding at much higher heat. Also very useful for camouflage, and it's 
apparently a known thing among horse keepers that in shady refuges, in forests or in stables, for instance, horses suffer horsefly annoyance only rarely. So there is an issue of temperature coming into that. The reason for this is threefold. Tabernids need enough free space to fly. Many tabernid species need a higher body temperature to start flying so quickly that they can successfully escape from the defensive reactions of a host animal. Tail swishing, biting, licking. And three, the forest vegetation, as a structured background, makes the visual recognition of a host animal much more difficult. So, so it is all about the way the flies see. If it's dark and shady and cool, then you won't be bothered by horseflies. If you're out in the sun, you might be. But if you are a pale-haired horse out in the sun, then you still won't be bothered as much as dark-haired horses, for all of our dark-haired horse listeners. As far as the dragonflies are concerned, it's essentially that a polished black tombstone reflects light almost exactly the same to a dragonfly's eyes as a body of water does. So they will hang around tombstones, they will defend them as if they're bodies of water that they can hunt on, they will mate around them and they will try and lay their eggs on them. So that's a problem. It's dragging them away from habitat where they could actually usefully live their lives. If dragonflies are attracted to black marble and its similarity to water, how are they coping with not only the destruction of their natural environment, but it being covered over with chrome? Because, you know, I've spent a couple of years living in Birmingham and everything is just polished glass and chrome there. Like the side of the bull ring is a, it's like the inside of a Dalek. I mean, I think the, uh, the tombstones they were looking at were black granite. So that's got a lot of odd properties as far as light ref- reflection is concerned with all the like mica and feldspar and shit would you class feldspar as a friend <laughs> I, I believe um, feldspar can be quite a useful mineral so in that sense it's friendly um, I don't think granite as a, as a stone is particularly friendly more brand personality needed there the prize for chemistry was awarded to Volkswagen for their innovative approach to emissions testing. And a lot of the prizes have been linking to the papers, the PubMed entries for the publications that they've been uh, quoting here. But this one goes straight to the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency of the US, with a warning for Clean Air Act violations for the company. I like the way that the uh, Improbable Research team refer to this as for solving the problem of excessive automobile pollution emissions by automatically, electromechanically producing fewer emissions wherever cars are being tested. And then in slightly less political news, the Medicine Prize goes to Christoph Helmchen, Karina Palzer, Thomas Munter, Silke Anders and Andreas Sprenger for discovering that if you have an itch on the left side of your body, just scratch the same part of the right side of your body and it'll be fine. While looking in a mirror, I think that's probably a crucial thing. Because I've heard that if you scratch, for example, your right arm when your left arm itches, then your body gets confused and the itch goes away to start. It's quite a folk remedy that I encountered when I was at school. If you'd fallen over and bumped your knee, if you rub the other knee, then it'll stop hurting because brains are easily fooled, apparently. But, you know... Human beings are very sophisticated creatures, but our brains are inexplicable. Well, the problem is that we're using our brains to try and explain our brains, and oh, that's that's a minefield. 
I mean, I'm pretty sure a computer could explain its computing, but... Oh, yeah, but that's less squishy. We'll come back to this more on the psychology prize later. No, let's move right on to the psychology prize. Because there's not a lot to go into on this. Itch in a mirror. There you go. The psychology prize awarded to another international team who asked a thousand liars how often they lie and decided whether or not to believe the answers. In a paper called From Junior to Senior Pinocchio, a cross-sectional lifespan investigation of deception. To go out there to do research into the lying behaviours of liars and then to question whether you can even trust the information you've gathered and to publish that... Like, not to assess that as a quality control measure to say, ooh, we're not sure about some of the data we're gathering. Maybe we should ask more people how much they lie and how often they lie and to whom. Just to turn around at yourself to say, oh, no. I mean, I think that's the trouble with trying to do a psychological study on people who you know are liars. There's no way of knowing if they're lying or not unless you, you literally put a wire on them and are listening to every single thing they say all the time. But this does make a lot of sense considering the Peace Prize won by the team who published a scholarly study called On the Reception Detection of Pseudo-Profound Bullshit, which perhaps the team of lying liars could have read. Is it pseudo-profound? I don't know. I think I'd have to ask the study team who won the Peace Prize. But it is still bullshit. I'm glad they're not shying away from their own terminology when they open the paper with Although bullshit is common in everyday life and has attracted attention from philosophers, its reception, critical or ingenuous, has not, to our knowledge, been subject to empirical investigation. Here we focus on pseudo-profound bullshit, which consists of seemingly impressive assertions that are presented as true and meaningful, but are actually vacuous. And they've very usefully included the Oxford English Dictionary definition of bullshit, which is simply rubbish and nonsense which unfortunately does not get us to the core of bullshit. And they've been looking at people's online behaviours, their tweeting, their sharing of the work of Deepak Chopra, who's authored books such as Quantum Healing and The Soul of Leadership, and has been accused of woo-woo nonsense. I love how woo merchants always employ quantum, because lay people don't understand it. You know what quantum... Lots of physicists don't understand it. You know what quantum means... How much? It's exactly about figuring out how much. Like putting a value onto a thing. Like to say, oh, it can exist in more than one state. It exists in degrees, which to say 0 0.3, 0 0.27, 0 0.5 aren't the same as on or off. It's, it is much more scientific than people are trying to get away with. Well, yeah, but people hear, oh, quantum uncertainty. That means magic must be real. Wizards! In their section on analytical thinking, consistent with Sagan's 1996 argument that critical thinking facilitates baloney detection, we posit that reflective thinking should be linked to bullshit receptivity. And it is almost a part of modern life to know someone or to even be someone who will share woo-woo bullshit online, to share inspirational quotes, to share something that means nothing. And they don't delve too deeply into the belief of these nothing, but certainly about the willingness to put up with it. Also, and I'm really enjoying the methodology of a lot of these studies, the materials that they've cited here include wisdomofchopra.com, 
which constructs meaningless statements with appropriate syntactic structure by randomly mashing together a list of words used by Deepak Chopra's tweets. For example... Imagination is inside exponential space-time events. And the bullshit generator. Which uses a, a list of profound-sounding words compiled by its author Seb Pierce. For example, we are in the midst of a self-aware blossoming of being that will align us with the nexus itself. What nexus? Whose nexus? When? Not my nexus. How do you align with a nexus? I have an idea. Okay, Google. How do I align with a nexus? Here we've got lots of results for how to convert alignment files into the following formats. Nexus.nex and faster and I don't know what kind of programs these files are for, but I don't think that's the nexus the bullshit generator was posting us to. I have a feeling. Anyway. From bullshit to goat shit. This is the biology prize. Split between Charles Foster and Thomas Thwaites. They have written separate books about separate experiences doing very much the same thing, i.e. living as wild animals. Charles Foster spent time living in the wild as a badger, an otter, a deer, a fox and a bird. Thomas Thwaites, on the other hand, made prosthetic extensions of his limbs to enable him to live more fully in the company and as a goat. They've both written books about their experiences. Uh, Thomas Thwaites is called Goatman, How I Took a Holiday from Being Human, and we'll include the full publishing details of that in case you want to have a read. And Charles Foster has provided us with Being a Beast. Some of the pictures included in these articles of a man dressed in articles of clothing very similar to those worn by track cyclists in the recent Olympics, of the swept-back helmets the full body enclosed in lycra, the hoof-like extensions on their feet. It's its more than slightly similar. I mean, sure, you probably won't get Chris Froome paddling about in one of these, but... There's also a picture of him having fallen flat on his face. I just want you all to know that. I think he's eating grass. No, he's definitely fallen over. When I fall, I don't look nearly as composed. Maybe he was living with the fainting goats. Well, at least he went the full goat and committed, as opposed to someone who spends time as a goat, and a bird, and a deer, and a fox. And I can understand wanting to connect with a more primal self, to go out and live in the hills, or even for those people who experience body dysphoria, who don't feel at home in their human skin with their human bodies, and try and move beyond that. But to spend so much time, as Charles Foster has, being so many different animals, well, that's just being greedy. The Literature Prize, as you'd expect, was also awarded for a book. This one to Frederick Sjöberg, who wrote a three-volume autobiography about the pleasures of collecting flies that are dead and flies that are not yet dead. There's really no more we can say about that. He I... collects flies, and he wrote three volumes of autobiography about it. No sensible person is interested in flies, Sjöberg writes. Correct. I mean, you can be interested in them. You don't necessarily want lots of them in a box. He has a certain way with words. Describing the uh, fixing process, having to pin them down for observation or for keeping, as as capricious and flexible as a French verb. Only one of these volumes has been published in English so far. I'm sure, having won an Ig Nobel Prize, the rest will follow. 
maybe we should start a book club. Spend, you know, a few weeks reading Goatman and the collection of flies. Really, it's all just about perspective, I guess. Speaking of perspective... Ignoble Perception Prize, which I feel like is probably not a usual. It's, it's not one of their standard categories was awarded to Atsuki Higashiyama and Kohei Adachi for investigating whether things look different when you bend over and look at them from between your legs. And it is important to note that this change of perspective can radically alter your evaluation of something's size or distance. If you're looking out at a full moon, for example, close one of your eyes or put your thumb up alongside it and it'll apparently shrink by about a third of the size. And they note that it is suggested that perceived size and perceived distance are affected by an inversion of body orientation, not of retinal image orientation. When path analysis and partial correlation analysis were applied to the whole data, perceived size was found to be independent of perceived distance. And I can't off the top of my head think of any useful applications for this research. No one knew what to do with lasers when they invented them, and now they're everywhere. And if you're listening to this and all you're hearing is that these sheep are very small and those sheep are far away, then I think that's really what it's coming down to. Cows. Father Ted was talking about cows. Who does that leave us with? Nothing. That's the final prize. The final prize to far away cows. Maybe we can take a moment to reflect on some of the past winners who didn't get the due coverage they deserved in our podcast because we weren't doing it yet. Such as last year's Chemistry Prize winners for the international team who figured out how to partially unboil an egg. The physics prize last year went to a team who tested the biological principle that nearly all mammals empty their bladders in about 21 seconds, plus or minus 13 seconds. I mean, I think 13 is quite a long way from 21. So it could take anything from 8 to 34, was it? Well, the management prize awarded to, for the study What Doesn't Kill You Will Only Make You More Risk-Loving, Early Life Disasters and CEO Behaviour. And that we should all bow down before the 1992 literature winner of Yuri Strakov, the, quote, unstoppable author from the Institute of Organo-Elemental Compounds in Moscow for the 948 scientific papers he is credited with publishing between the years of 1981 and 1990, averaging more than one every 3.9 Day. Who can write that quick? We could do a whole retrospective podcast on the work of Yuri Strakov. We won't, but... 2014 Art Prize, which was awarded to an Italian team who investigated whether your pain threshold was altered by looking at pretty paintings or ugly paintings. Turns out it hurts less when you're looking at something nice. Let us not forget the fantastic work in the 1993 Peace Prize winning Pepsi Cola Company of the Philippines, suppliers of sugary hopes and dreams for sponsoring a contest to create a millionaire and then announcing the wrong winning number, thereby inciting and uniting 800,000 riotously expectant winners and bringing many warring factions together for the first time in their nation's history. We can only hope to have such an impact ourselves, but that'll have to wait until next time. Questions? Comments? You can send them to us at eurekanerdcast at gmail.com that's EurekaNerdcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook and Tumblr as EurekaNerd or on Twitter as EurekaNerdcast. For now, that's all from me. And all from me. Thanks very much and goodbye. <laughs>